Uh, this morning, Romans chapter 6, and uh, we're going to be looking at the, the last half of that uh, chapter this morning, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. As you're turning there, it was, uh, Kathy and I had a great week uh, away. Um, I was on my own for a week in Chicago, and it was good to uh, just be out there and to uh, do a little bit of learning, and then uh, Kath and I were able to get away for a week on our own, and we just thank you um, for letting us go and for praying for us uh, while we were away, and uh, it's good to be back. It's good to be back with spring uh, in the air. Um, let's stand together and read the word of the Lord uh, this morning, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, a familiar passage of scripture, uh, but yet one that I think um, is helpful for us to think about. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, thank you now for an opportunity to um, sit before your word. Lord, we have participated in song and in prayer, and um, now we participate in the hearing and the receiving of your word. I am so thankful for the word of God. I am so thankful for a truth that speaks so accurately about life as we know it. I am so thankful that, uh, that you, Father, have not sort of played with us and, and fooled us, but you have spoken clearly to us about the reality of life, about the way life works, about the bondage that we are in to sin, about the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, as we go through this passage of Scripture this morning, a difficult passage, a passage full of terms that aren't necessarily part of our everyday language. But may you help us. May you teach us. May you demonstrate to us the joy of becoming a slave of God. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. You may be seated. As we look ahead to, to Easter weekend, it's, as I mentioned a couple of minutes earlier, only a few uh, weeks away. And in a very practical sense, we are all now living under the shadow of the cross. Uh, it is a historical reality, and it is an eternal reality. And the events that happened some 2,000 years ago 
were events of such magnitude that all of eternity past led up to that point, and all of eternity future goes from that point. Truly, all of history is lived in the shadow of the cross. It matters. It matters for our understanding of life. It matters for our understanding of history. It matters for our understanding of past, present, and future. And when we come to the cross, one of the single realities that you and I face is this reality. You've got to serve somebody. The cross makes that absolutely clear. Bob Dylan tried to do it back in the 80s when he was experimenting with Christianity. And he was right when he wrote that song, You've Got to Serve Somebody. There is nobody who is autonomous. Only God is autonomous. Every single one of us serve somebody or something. And so as we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, we realize the magnitude of our servitude. That we either serve God or we serve sin. And the reality of those two servitudes are either eternal separation from God or eternal life. This is serious stuff. As we come then to uh, this chapter, one of the first things that we need to ask ourselves is whose slave are you? It's not language that we're very familiar with. It's not the way that we like to think about ourselves, particularly in these days of autonomy and of freedom. But the reality is, each one of us serves somebody. And I think one of the difficulties of this passage, and I think of much of Scripture, to, to not only those who have embraced Christianity, but to those who are searching and checking out Christianity, is the way that Christianity really boils down to a fairly simple reality. There are two ways. There are two choices. There are only two um, ultimate, uh, eternal realities. And many people rail against that. They say, well, how unsophisticated is that? How simplistic is that, that you can boil such things of great magnitude down to one or the other? But loved ones, I believe the scripture is truth. I believe that the scripture speaks honestly and truthfully to our experience. And our experience and our um, interaction with life reveals to us that there is really only two ways to go. It's something that we wrestle with in the deepness of our heart and in the quietness of those times when we're alone. And so Paul does a masterful job here again of saying to us, there are two realities. One is slavery to sin and the other is slavery to God. In the first part of Romans chapter 1, which we didn't read today, Paul is talking about an issue that's raised there because these are fairly parallel passages of Scripture. But there, he says, does grace, does the grace of God, and when we talk about the grace of God, we talk about a gift that God gives to us. Grace is something that we don't deserve. And so Paul is talking in Romans chapter uh, 6 in the beginning about how people who are sinners have received grace. And how in the reception of that grace, God is glorified. But some of the people were saying, well, this is a great situation then. Because the more I sin, the more God can be gracious, and the more God can be glorified. And so God's response, and Paul's response to them in, in, the, in the first 
couple of verses of Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where they say, can we continue in sin that grace might increase? Paul says, by no means. Because you have died to that sin now, and you live in Christ, that it's no longer you that lives, but it's Christ that lives in you. How can you continue to sin when you have died to it? And so now we come, though, to uh, the parallel passage in verse 15. And verse 14, it ended that sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under the law, but under the grace. And so some of these Christians' minds starts turning again and they said, oh, this is great news. Uh, The law has been broken. So I don't have to worry about the law because I am under grace now. So it doesn't matter how I live. And in about three weeks, we're going to start in the book of Jude, which addresses this issue. And the big word that we use to um, summarize that view is antinomianism. It's lawlessness. It's a way of thinking that it really doesn't matter how I live anymore because I'm under grace. Well, that's a part of what Paul is saying here now. These people are saying, well, it doesn't matter how I live because I'm free from the law. And so Paul is going to give an argument of why that's not the case. Verse, verses 1 to 14 says something has happened inside of us. We have died to sin. Verses 15 to 23 tell us there's an external reality that we now present the members of our body as instruments of whoever we serve, either of sin leading to death or of righteousness leading to eternal life. It helps sometimes to understand what sin is. We, we talk about sin a lot, and, and I, I continue to, to say that sin is trying to be marginalized. Our culture is doing whatever it can to squeeze sin to the peripheries of life, to ignore it, to say that it doesn't exist, and yet sin is a reality that we all wrestle with. Um, Alvin Plantinga who is just a great um, philosopher, Christian philosopher, has described sin this way. And and I'm going to read his description, and I'm going to say a couple things um, uh, on my own uh, about sin. But he says, The Bible presents sin by way of major concepts. Two concepts principally are lawlessness and faithlessness. So it helps us understand what sin is. Sin is either lawlessness, I don't follow the law, or it's faithlessness, I'm not faithful to the lawgiver. It's, he says it's expressed in an array of images. Sin is missing the target. Um, and I think we all know what missing a target is. It's not only missing the, the target that's on the wall, but if you shoot an arrow and it doesn't make the target, you fall short of the target. It's a wandering from the path. It's a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart or a stiff neck. And we know that. We, we've experienced hard-heartedness. We've experienced a stiff neck in our life. It's both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach that line. It's both transgression and it's a shortcoming. Sin, and this is from Genesis chapter 3, sin is described as a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it's familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is a disruption of the created harmony. Sin is not how God meant things to be. And then resistance to the divine restoration to restore harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. 
And it does all this disrupting and resisting in a number of intertwined ways. I hope that helps you understand something of the broadness of sin and the variety of sin. But I want to sort of narrow it down to three terms, which there are more terms in the Bible, but these three terms help me to understand um, uh, in a large measure how sin works. The first is to understand that sometimes the Bible, one of the most familiar uses of the word sin in the Bible is the word transgression. And a transgression is, is when we revolt against a standard. When we know what the standard is and we say, I don't give a rip about that standard. A transgression is a willful violation of the standard. It's an open and a brazen defiance of God by human beings. God says, you should not steal. You say, I don't give a rip about what God says. I want that. I don't care whose it is and it's mine. And you steal it. It's, it's an attitude that says, I don't care what you say. I can do what I want. Nobody can tell me what to do. It's willful disobedience. It's rebellion. And I've described it this way before. Um, and I don't like picking on snowboarders, but I'll pick on snowboarders because we, we're almost at the end of skiing season. And, and we have heard the stories of snowboarders who transgress. How do they transgress? They go up to Mount Washington or Mount Seymour or Grouse Mountain or some other mountain. And they ski down and they all of a sudden see this path. But there's a, 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 um, a yellow marker across the path. And there's a stake in the ground that says, out of bounds, danger, do not leave here. But they think, well, there's better snow over there. There's untouched terrain. And so they transgress deliberately and willfully. They say, you don't know what you're saying. I'm going to go and ski there. And inevitably, every year, we send out search and rescue teams to pull back snowboarders and skiers who have transgressed the boundaries of the mountain. That's sort of just one illustration, and it's a helpful one for me, of deliberate defiance of a boundary that is set up. Loved ones, sometimes that's how we respond to God's word. Sometimes that's how we respond to God's law. We know what God says But we say, I don't care. Who are you to tell me how to live? A second way that uh, the Bible describes sin is uh, iniquity. And iniquity is a deviation or a twisting of the standard. So we know what the standard is, but we twist it a little bit. Um, It's like uh, Satan when he came to even, has God really said? Is this really what God means? And I, and I don't like picking on kids, but kids are masters at this kind of thing. You know, you, you think you've been absolutely clear, but you've forgotten one word, or you've emphasized the wrong syllable, or you've, and, and they pick on that, and they deviate from the, the clear intention of what you have said to them. Curfews, I think, are one of the great joys of parents. And some of you have lived through it. Some of you are living in it, and some of you will face it. But curfews are one of the things that kids so masterfully twist and deviate from. It's just, it's something within us that, that, that we look for the, 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 the possible out or the possible way to allow us to do something, although we know we shouldn't really do it. 
And so there is a world of hurt that comes into the life of uh, all of us because we will not accept the standard. We twist it or we deviate from it. A third way of describing sin in the Bible is, um, and it's the most general word, and it simply means to miss the mark. It means we know what God wants of us, but we miss it because we do something else. Or it's another way of saying we fall short of that mark. And how do we describe that in Scripture? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that, in a sense, is, is what sin is. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. The glory of God is revealed in His commands. The glory of God is revealed in His law. The glory of God is revealed in His design and desire for us to live in a certain way. And when we, when we twist that, or when we purposely um, uh, say, I don't want that, or when we fall short of that, we fall short of the glory of God. And so that's what Romans 6 is about. He's trying to help us understand sin and its nature and its reality. And I don't understand why we do this. I don't understand why, as Christians, we look for ways to do this. But here Paul is writing to Romans, and they're looking for ways to justify sin. That's what they're doing. In in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, can we continue? We, we ought to keep sinning because that makes God look good. Paul says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. In verse 15, he says, well, there's no law. That means we don't have to keep the law. Paul says, no, no, that's not what it means. Why is it that we want to look for ways to justify our sin and to abuse the grace and the mercy of God? And so Paul talks in this chapter about being a slave of sin or about being a slave of God. And when we have this thinking that looks to justify sin, it only leads to disaster and hurt in our lives. One of the ways that we do this, and we can see five different reasons in this passage of why we ought not sin. I think they're valid reasons. And so whether you're a Christian or whether you're uh, not a Christian, you don't really care, or whether you're seeking, why is it that we should not sin? Well, Paul says the first thing is that sin is slavery. Notice what he says there, that you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Sin is bondage. Sin is control. We don't have to look far even from our own lives to see the way that if we, before we became a Christian, how sin controlled us, how sin determined our behaviors, how sin entrapped us, how sin promised us way more than it offered, how, how sin got a hold of our lives and dictated how we spent our money, how we dressed, where we went, how we spoke. Sin enslaves us. We see that in addictions, whether it's addictions to food or whether it's addictions to um, uh, um, drugs or whether it's addiction to pornography or whether it's addiction to gossip or addictions to idolatry. We understand how those things control us. Sin is a vicious master. Sin is a harsh master. Why would we want to sin when we know how sin destroys our lives? Jesus couldn't have said it any more clearly 
when he said, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. So, dear ones, why would you want to sin and participate in something that makes you its slave for your harm? The second thing we see is that sin leads to death. Paul says that. Again, we don't even have to refer farther than verse um, 16. Either sin which leads to death. I might refer to this a, a little bit later, but when, when he's talking about death there, there's a, he's talking about the full scope of death. And I don't think we often think of the full scope when we think of death. There is a, a death that, that will happen um, at the end of time when we are completely separated from God. That is eternal separation. That is being removed ever from the presence of God. And at that point, we, we, are, we are dead to God for eternity. What a horrid reality that will be. But we step up a step, and there's physical death. Every single one of us here, I can safely say, in 120 years, will not be here. Some are, amen. <laughs> That's a good thing. That could be a bad thing. But, but death is a reality. And we have to understand why does death happen? Death happens because of sin. And so there is a reality that physically, every single one of us will answer to that slave master. But then there's also an immediate death that takes place. Do you know sometimes you talk to people and they say, I did this and I, something died inside of me. You know, you, you and I, I, I hate picking on sexual sin, but that seems to be one that, that it so clearly manifests itself. And it happens in all other things. But when people disobey God and, and sin sexually, something dies inside of them. When you, when you persist in lying, something dies inside of you. And so death is not just something that happens way down the road. It's something that starts as we commit ourselves to a life of sin. So loved ones, why would you want to do something that results in death? Why would we want to ever say, this is a good thing? It enslaves us and it results in death. The third thing that I think we find uh, here is that we've been freed from it. Verse 18, Paul says there very clearly, having been set free from sin. That, that to me is, is we, we need to think about that for a moment. Because there was a tremendous cost that was paid in order to free you from the penalty of sin. And that's what we are coming to when we come to Easter. That when we reflect on the cross of Christ, there was a massive price that Christ paid in order to ransom us from death. In order to set us free from the bondage of sin. And Peter puts it this way, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you. Do you know that? That God paid, if you're a Christian, God paid a ransom to save you. From the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid, listen carefully, was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. You see, when we return back to sin, 
What we're saying is you didn't pay enough. Yeah, you died, but that wasn't enough. Yeah, you shed your blood, but you know what? It wasn't enough. And so when we say, yeah, I I can keep sinning, what we are doing is really we're slapping the cross, we're slapping Christ in the face. And we're saying your death means nothing. So loved ones, why would we say that sin is good when we've been freed from it? We live in the shadow of the cross. As Christians, and and as those who are set free from sin, we need to constantly look at the cross and remember the ransom that has been paid in order that you and I might have freedom. Why not sin? Fourth reason, because we are slaves to God. Our loyalty now has been shifted. We once were slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin no longer. God is our master. Our allegiance has changed. We, we, we remain slaves, but we have a different master now. And John eight thirty six talks about, in a, in a very nutshell way, that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. There is, a, there is a kind master, a generous master, a gracious master, God who, who guides and directs and, 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 and manages our life in such a way that there is joy joy and there is freedom or there is the harsh cruel reality of sin that will control and destroy us and the last thing paul says in verse 22 and he probably says more he says but now that you have set been set free from sin and have become slaves for god the fruit you get leads to sanctification you see slavery to god being set free from sin doesn't free us to sin more It frees us now to serve God. It frees us to live righteously, um, to, to live rightly, to live honorably, to live according to the law before man and before God, which leads to further holiness. And so Christianity can never lead to license. It can never lead to, to flagrant, flagrant sinning. It must inevitably lead to what God desires for us which is our health and our wholeness and our spiritual health and wholeness. So to continue in sin, loved ones, is to become enslaved to it all over again. It's to reject the ransom that Christ has paid for it. It's to serve a cruel master instead of a good master. So that's some of the reasons why we can't sin any longer. Come to... Uh, verses 19 to 20, and we come to sort of a bottom line. And I, you know, I, 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 I think it's important that we understand this again, because I mentioned this off the top about the two ways in which we are to live. And again, um, Paul was not unaware of, of the way that people might receive being called a slave. Slavery is not language that you and I are familiar with really at all today. We might joke around about, you know, saying we're a slave in a marriage or we're a slave in a job or, or whatnot. But it is nothing to what Paul is talking about when he's talking about slavery back in those days. A slave in those days had no rights. The master could even say, you're dead, and they would die on the spot. They had no freedom. 24 hours a day, they served their master. And Paul understood how that could be a tough thing for us to grasp. 
But Paul also had the, had the ability to say that Christ, who was God, counted it not, um, not equality with God, something to grasp, but he set that aside and he became a slave. And so there is a reality that we are owned, we are a slave, either of sin or of God, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, for as long as we live. And that's why I think Paul says in there, I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. There was a, they couldn't figure that out spiritually. So he said, well, here's a, a human analogy to help you understand slavery to sin or slavery to God. And the, 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 we understand then, and Paul's, he's two options. Two options are everywhere through scripture. Psalm chapter 1, which is the introduction to all of, uh, all of the Psalms, presents these options to us. There is the, blessed is the man who does not walk in the, in the, oh, I should have. Someone, who memorized that? Blessed is the man. Counsel of the ungodly. Nor stand in the, or sit. You guys are good. I did that on purpose. And at the end of it, he says, but the wicked are not so. They are blown away like chaff. Paul says there are only two options, or the psalmist says there are only two options in life. There's the way of the wicked, or there's the way of the righteous. Last week, Pastor Gerald took us to the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks very clearly about the theology of two ways. And, and, and I'd like to spend a lot of time here, but there is a doctrine of two ways that's woven throughout the Scripture. We've seen it in Psalm uh, chapter 1. But Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, talks about two gates. He talks about two roads. He talks about two kinds of trees, good trees and bad trees. He talks about two kinds of fruit, good fruit and bad fruit. He talks about um, two foundations, um, sand or rock. He talks about two houses that are descriptive of our life. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There are two ways in life. Paul presents the two ways here. One is the path of sin. Notice what he says again back in in verse 18. Sin is slavery. Sin leads to death. But notice what he says there. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. There is a progressive grip that slavery to sin has on us. And if you've ever watched those 2020 shows or those 48-hour mystery shows, you see how they often start with somebody and they, they commit some act and they, they do something as a child or they get involved in something, but then it keeps working itself out in worse and worse and worse ways. That sin is never satisfied, that it always promises something just a little bit more than it offers. And if you become a slave to sin, you find yourself progressively committing more and more lawlessness. And he says, if you go down that path, its way is the way of death. Loved ones, we need to be brutally honest about the slavery of sin and take the bait off the hook. We need to peel the false promises that sin makes and peel them away from this hook that will eventually kill us and realize that the path of sin leads to destruction 
increasing sinfulness and eventually death. But the opposite, he says, there is the path of life. Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's the same truth. If you continue to walk with God, if you continue to walk according to his word, if you continue to do what's pleasing to God, it will more and more become natural to you. It will more and more flow from your life. There will be greater sanctification. That's why we say grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord in Jesus Christ. That's why we talk about a term progressive sanctification. Because the more you do it, the more you want to do it and the better you become and so there's those two paths and notice what he says here i I know i'm talks about our bodies this is so important loved ones that we get this do you notice how through 15 to 23 talks about don't present the members of your body to sin but present the members of your body to righteousness. We need to have a theology of the body. Loved ones, you need to think about how your body is a vehicle for expressing slavery to sin or how it's a vehicle for expressing slavery to God leading to holiness. Do you know that your physical body is an instrument through which you sin or it's an instrument through which you pursue righteousness? And so it matters how you use your hands. Do you think about that? The things that you pick up, the things that you put into your mouth, the things that you open, the, the, the way that you use your hand to hit, the way that you use your hand to love. Your hands are instruments of either slavery to sin or slavery to righteousness. How do you use your hands? And what about your, your, your feet? Where do your feet take you? What stores do you walk into? What streets do you walk down? What businesses do you go into? You see, our feet take us to places that can become expressions of our slavery either to sin or your slavery to righteousness. Many of you, all of you here, that I can see your feet led you to the place of worship. They are an instrument of righteousness. Proverbs chapter 7, uh, 7 to 9, is an is a, a account of a man watching a, a young man who's foolish and naive and how his feet are leading him towards sin. And he says there, I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youth, a young man lacking sense. Why? He passes along the street near her corner. This is an adulteress or a prostitute. He's in the wrong part of town. His feet have taken him to a place he should never be. And then it says, he takes the road leading to her house. His feet are being used as instruments of sin. Or what about our eyes? What what things do you look at? Um, What TV shows do you watch? What books do you read? How do your eyes lead you to sin? I was thinking of this with Achan. In the Old Testament, Achan was a man who caused great harm to the people of Israel because his eyes became instruments of sinfulness. And finally, Joshua singles him out and he says, Achan, what did you do? And this is what Achan says. He says, when I saw among the spoil, when I saw among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, Then I coveted them and took them. His eyes were instruments of sin leading to death. What about your ears? 
What, what do you listen to? Who do you listen to? What kind of music influences you? What kind of conversations do you engage in? Do your things that you listen to, the way that you use your ears, does that foster sinfulness or does it foster righteousness? What about our mouths? What about the things that we speak from our mouths? Let me read James chapter 3 verses 1 to 2 because I think this so clearly illustrates how our tongues are used as instruments either of righteousness or instruments of sinfulness. James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. It's amazing that the tongue controls our whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we will guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts many things. How great a forest fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the whole course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's dangerous stuff. That's our tongue being used as an instrument of sin. And uh, for every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of de- deadly poison. And then this is the, this is the fascinating um, commentary. With it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. That's using our tongue for righteousness. Using our tongue for sanctification. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We use our tongue as an instrument of unrighteousness as an instrument of slavery to sin. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So how we use our bodies, these physical containers of our soul, matters. Loved ones, if you control, or if, how you use your body is a good indication to you of whether you are a slave to God or a slave to sin. I just want to jump very quickly to the last verse because I think we need to end here um, where he says, but the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think it's such an important place for us to land because this is really what it means to live under the cross. The wages of sin is death. You know, that, that word wages, first of all, it just simply describes a wage is what you deserve. A wage is what you are owed. And so what, what Paul is saying is that every one of us who sins, who persists in sin, we will receive the wage that we're due. We will get what we deserve. And the wages of our sin is ultimately death. But the word wage is, 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 is a word that refers to a subsistence wage that was paid to a soldier every day. So, in other words, I think it's, it's one way of sort of saying that sin barely pays what we need. Uh, sin barely pays us sort of a, a, enough to live on. It's, a, it's an illusion that we have that it will provide for us what we need. And then that illusion is wiped away and the end is death. 
I wish I could say this with, with, with passion. I wish I could get into all of our hearts and our minds and, and sort of let you know that sin is a dangerous path to be walking down. Because it will lead to death. You will get what you deserve if you persist in obeying the master sin. The loved ones. The free gift of God. You hear that? The free gift of God. It explodes with mercy and grace. It is entirely undeserved. It is entirely contrary to what we think we should get. It is something we cannot earn. It is something we cannot buy. It is something that we could never inherit. It is the free gift of God to you and I. All we simply need to do is put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because he says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Living under the shadow of the cross. Jesus died so that we could have Freedom from the slavery to sin and receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Are you living under the shadow of the cross today? You've got to serve somebody. Who are you serving? Are you serving sin? Which ultimate wages will be death? Or are you serving God? whose free gift in Christ Jesus is eternal life. You need to decide. Don't leave here without considering that reality this morning. You've got to serve somebody.